Amen. Well, this morning, please open your Bibles to two passages of Scripture. Open your Bibles to the book of Zechariah, chapter 11. You'll find that two books before Matthew. And also to the book of Revelation, chapter 16. And what I want to do today is first begin with prayer, then we'll address the Scripture. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we pray you'll strengthen us and encourage us with your word and give us your wisdom to see how these historical events and even the predictions in Zechariah even apply to us in our lifetime. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, I've been preaching a series of sermons through the book of Zechariah. We're now in chapter 11 this week. And chapter 11 is a rather difficult book, a difficult chapter to spend such a short time in. And so I think the best way to angle in to this particular chapter is to bring up a a little point from Revelation chapter 16, verse 19. I'm going to bring up a little point from this verse. Chapter 16 of Revelation, verse 19. It says, Now the great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and great Babylon was remembered before God, to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. In this particular section of the book of Revelation, John is writing this a couple of years before the fall of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is pictured here as great Babylon. Jerusalem in chapter 17 is like an immoral woman that will be devoured by the Roman beast. And in AD 70, that's whenever Rome came in and totally destroyed the city of Jerusalem. And when you study some more history of how the Jews responded responded to this, it was over a 70-year period up until 135 AD that the Jews continued to try to fight and defeat Rome. And here, John is, and they kept losing. And by 135 AD, or AD 135, the Jewish people lost well over a million people in their warfare against Rome. And God kept using Rome to put them down and destroy their civilization. Now, the main reason you can say why that God did that in His providence is because of verse 19. It says, Great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of His wrath. One of the great privileges that we have in the Christian faith and promises is that when we come and repent of our sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that God promises to remember our sins no more. Well, if you don't repent and you don't come to Jesus Christ, here's the flip side of that. This is when God remembers your sins. This is when God remembered the sins of Jerusalem to give her the cup of the fierceness of his wrath. In the context here, the cup that she drinks, that Jerusalem drinks, is the cup of blood that she she shed in the city. She killed all the Christians in the city. And God is going to give her the cup, and she's going to drink the blood and get drunk on it before God slays her and puts her to death. That's the imagery that's being worked with here. But let me also suggest to you that there are two things that God remembers, and this is how it's going to come back to the book of Zechariah chapter 11. Remember these two things. Number one, God remembers how the high priest and the temple rulers paid 30 pieces of silver 
to capture Jesus to betray Him. Of course, those people who repented of their sins, God did not remember that sin anymore. Those people who repented of their sins, they found forgiveness in the blood of Jesus Christ. But those who assaulted Christ and also killed Christ's bride in the city of Jerusalem, God would remember the price, the 30 pieces of silver that the high priests and the temple rulers used to capture the Lord Jesus Christ and crucify Him. The second thing that God would remember about the city of Jerusalem and hold the city of Jerusalem to account is how their leaders said this, we have no king but Caesar. God remembered that. And therefore Caesar came here in AD 70 and totally destroyed them. Now, this, with this knowledge and revelation, we can angle now into Zechariah. Turn to Zechariah, and let me catch you up to chapter 11. Let me give you a good summary of chapter 9. <clears throat> you can see how the flow of history is being followed along here in the book of Zechariah. In chapter 9 of Zechariah, we saw that he gives some prophetic accounts of some inner testament events about Alexander the Great coming down there around 330 B.C., conquering Tyre and Sidon. We also saw how he predicted the events of the Maccabean Revolt there against the nation of Greece, which happened about 165 years before Christ. That's Zechariah chapter 9, an inner testament commentary or prophecy. Zechariah chapter 10 we saw a really encouraging and good passage last week because it's talking about the New Testament. Not Inner Testament, but New Testament. There's heavenly water being baptizing the people in verse 1. And then it ends in verse 11 with, with conquering a, a conquest, a baptism of conquest through earthly water. And all the blessings that will come and strengthen men in the New Covenant era. That is the New Testament. And you can apply this especially to the apostles. The apostles were, were God's new Jerusalem, his new Judah. His, and, and they are strengthened like Stephen, even to go to their martyrdom and to pass through the waters of martyrdom with victory. Stephen's name, his name means crown. He is victorious. So you can interpret chapter 10 as a commentary on the conquest, the victory of the apostles during their day and age, and even apply that, even apply that to the church now. Well, what happened after the apostles? After the apostles, a lot of them were martyred. A lot of them were killed. That's what Revelation 1 through 19 is about and how they're going to go through the waters of difficulty and affliction. Well, God remembers Jerusalem. God remembers to hold that evil Babylon to account. And now we come to a very disturbing chapter, chapter 11. What I want to do today is read through verse by verse and just make some comments on each verse and apply it to you. We're going to see four parts of this chapter. First of all, it begins with this imagery of leaders and shepherds who are crying and wailing and mourning. Before I read this, remember back in chapter 9, God said in verse, uh, excuse me, chapter 10, verse 3, God says, My anger is kindled against the shepherds. Well, in chapter 11, we're going to see the full anger of God against the shepherds and why this is the case. Look at verses 1 through 3 of chapter 11. Open your doors, O Lebanon, that fire may devour your cedars. 
wail. That means cry, cry, cry. O Cyprus, for the cedar has fallen because the mighty trees are ruined. Wail, O oaks of Bashan, for the thick forest has come down. There is the sound of wailing shepherds, for their glory is in ruins. There is the sound of roaring lions, for the pride of the Jordan is in ruins. This passage of scripture, especially whenever we look at the rest of this chapter, is a prophecy of the destruction of Jerusalem and what Rome is going to do all around the area. And God is using this metaphor of trees. Trees are majestic. He's using also the metaphor of the shepherds and the lions. They are wailing. They are crying because they are going to be completely consumed, completely devoured. And the doors of Lebanon are going to open and the floodgates of the wrath of God is going to come down. So you see this is an emotional transition. We go from really happy stuff in chapter, chapter 10 to real negative things here in, in chapter 11, a judgment. And that's why you can sense that in chapter 10 it's a good application to the, the conquest and the goodness and the victory of the apostolic church. But here we see God's judgment coming down upon Jerusalem because of their assault against Christ and His people. Let's move on now to God's wrath in verses 4 through 6. And before I read this, let me give you the imagery of what's, what's happening here. Many of the prophets were, I say this in a, a reverent way, they acted out a lot of things, they dramatized a lot of things that God was going to do. And what's happening here is that, is that Zechariah is going to act out like a shepherd. He's going to function like a righteous shepherd. And he's going to go through the motions of what a good shepherd does and how a good shepherd is rejected and how God responds to the rejection of a good shepherd. And this is anticipating what Christ is going to go through. So look in verse 4. He says this, Thus says the Lord my God, Feed the flock for slaughter. Now I'll pause there. That is for That is a... Um, the New King James translation, some translations say this, and it's probably a better translation to say it this way. Be, become a good sh a shepherd of the flock that is doomed for slaughter. The point is this, is that, is that as Zechariah feeds this flock, as he functions like a good shepherd and takes care of this, this flock, this flock of sheep is actually going to go through a slaughter. It is going to go through destruction. Verses 5 and 6 explain why. Because it says this, the slaughter, the, the, the flock whose owners slaughter them and they feel no guilt. Those who sell them say, Blessed be the Lord, for I am rich. And their shepherds do not pity them. At this particular verse, God has the leaders over the sheep in focus. God is accusing the leaders that are over all the sheep. And notice how they're abusing the sheep. They sell the sheep for slaughter. And they're saying, blessed be Yahweh. I am rich. And because how are they getting their wealth and everything? They're using the sheep under them for their own good. And these shepherds have no pity for the sheep under them. 
This is a perfect illustration of the Pharisees, the Sadducees, uh, and how they ruled Jerusalem in the days of Jesus. And this is why Jesus was so angry with the people in the temple and why he went and overturned the tables in there and why the people were taking even the last two pennies or two mites from a widow and trying to devour her house. You see all of that in the life, uh, in the, what Jesus Christ was confronting in his earthly ministry. And the, the Pharisees are enriching themselves. So this, in verse 5, God is focusing on the leaders. But that's, that's not just the problem. When you have leadership like that, the sheep are going to follow. The sheep are going to follow, and they themselves will be found guilty of following such wicked shepherds. And they themselves will come under the same punishment that the shepherds led them into. Look in verse 6. This is what it is in verse 6. He says, For I will no longer pity the inhabitants of the land, says the Lord. But indeed, I will give everyone into his neighbor's hand and into the hand of his king. They shall attack the land, and I will not deliver them from their hand. There's two hands, or there's three, three times the word hand is mentioned. One hand is the neighbor's. That's where God has given them over to their neighbor's hand, and they're fighting each other. Uh, civil disturbance among, on, the, on that level. And then it says that God gives them over to the hand of his king, meaning the, the Judah's king or Israel's king. And this is where you see where you can tie in some Old Testament, New Testament commentary. Who's king? Who was king of the land of Israel during the days of A.D. 70? Who was the king of the land during the days of the apostles? Well, if you follow the advice and the counsel of the Pharisees and what they said to Pilate, they said, we have no king but Caesar. Sure enough, God acknowledged that and said, fine, you want Caesar as your king? There he is. And he brought Caesar down in A.D. 70 and totally destroyed them, gave them into the hands of their king. This is, I think, a very good application and interpretation of this passage. So in verse 5, God is condemning the leaders. And also in verse 6, He is condemning the followers, the sheep that are being led to the slaughter. And there's no deliverance from them from the hand of Caesar. Moving on, we see that Zechariah continues to function like a good shepherd. In verses 7 and 8, there are actually seven verbs here of what Zechariah will do. But let me read verses 7 and 8. He says, So I fed the flock that is doomed for slaughter, in particular the poor of the flock. I took for myself two staffs, the one I called beauty and the other I called bonds. And I fed the flock. I dismissed or I cut off the three shepherds in one month. My soul loathed them, and their soul also abhorred me. So he's functioning like a good shepherd, and he's caring for this flock, even though they're doomed for the slaughter. He's feeding the poor of the flock. Remember that. The poor of the flock is going to come up later. And then he takes two staffs. This is important for the next section of Scripture here. One staff is called beauty. Now, this word beauty it also means grace. It also means pleasantness. It is the word, it is the word uh, neon. 
or noam. And if you say my pleasantness or my beauty or my graciousness, you are pronounced it as Naomi. This is the same word of the lady, the elderly lady mentioned in the book of Ruth. And this staff of beauty, of grace, of pleasantness, it, 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 it's going to symbolize a vertical relationship of God's covenant with his people. Remember that. It's going to come up in the next couple of verses. The other staff... It's called bonds. This will symbolize the horizontal relationship between Israel and Judah, the nation of Israel coming together and being bonded together. Remember that he has two staffs. One staff symbolizing God's covenant relationship, the vertical relationship. The second staff is about a horizontal relationship with people. Remember this, this, this imagery here. And then verse 8 says he cut off three shepherds in one month. I'm not sure anybody knows exactly what that means. My point is... <laughs> is that there's many different interpretations of what this means. Um, the one thing I will, I will maybe suggest is that it might indicate some type of, of false trinity um, there with three evil shepherds. Um, the book of Revelation picks up a lot on the imagery of counterfeits and things like that. But either way, he stands in there. He's doing his job. That's the main point. He's doing his job. He's cutting off the bad shepherds. And, and he loves them, and they don't like him. Now, here's where things go to a kind of a pause. How do people respond? The way people respond is they don't like Zechariah's job. They hate Zechariah, the good shepherd. So the rest of this chapter that I'm going to read to you is what I would call the domino effect. The domino effect of rejecting the good shepherd. And there's seven dominoes that reflect... The days of creation, because what God is going to do, He's going to uncreate them. He is going to decreate them. And I'm going to go through the seven phrases here for the, next, for the rest of the sermon. And that is, number one, the first step is that once they reject Zechariah, Zechariah, number one, will stop feeding them. Look in verse 9. It says, I, Then I said, I will not feed you. Let what is dying die. And what is perishing perish. Let those that are left eat each other's flesh. So there's no food for life. It is the death sentence of you're dead, you're dead, and you're going to eat each other. That's exactly what happened in AD 70. There was such starvation in the city of Jerusalem that people even ate their own children. That is how devastating it was. And so that's the first one. No light. You know, no grace, it's no feeding right here. The second act that demonstrates, uh, or the second um, effect of rejecting a good shepherd is when he breaks the staff of Naomi, or Naomi, the grace staff. Watch this in verse 10 and 11. I took my staff, which is called grace or beauty or Naomi, and I cut it in two that I may break the covenant which I made with all the peoples. So it was broken on that day. <clears throat> Thus the poor of the flock who were watching me knew that it was the word of the Lord. Now, you remember on the second day of creation, God put the firmament as a uniting barrier between heaven and earth. The firmament is like the glue that brought heaven and earth together. It's a fence, but also a barrier, and it joined the parts together. Or here... This joining symbol, this 
This stick that, that stands for the covenant between God and the people is now broken. It's, it's broken. There is no more right fellowship or relationship between God and the people. Now God's wrath will come down. But notice this in verse 11. The poor of the flock were watching the covenant being broken. And they knew it was the word of the Lord. I think that's a good commentary on what Jesus' followers knew during Jesus' earthly ministry. They knew that God was severing His covenant, or they eventually knew that God was severing His covenant with old Israel and making a new covenant with a new Israel, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they knew it was the word of the Lord. So that's the second step or the second domino of them rejecting the good shepherd. Third, there's a third step here in verse 12. It says, Then I said to them, If it is agreeable for you, give me my wages. And if not, refrain. So they weighed out for me my wages, 30 pieces of silver. This right here is the first fruits of showing you how these people are so ungrateful and no gratitude. You may think, oh, that's really great. 30 pieces of silver, that's a lot of money, right? No, it wasn't. In the Old Testament, in Exodus chapter 21, verse 32, there was a law of God that said this. If a slave is killed by an ox, that dead slave is worth 30 pieces of silver. So the man who owned the ox had to go and pay the owner of the slave 30 pieces of silver for a dead slave. That shows you how much lack of gratefulness that the people had for Zechariah in this demonstration of how they reject, not only do they reject the shepherd, reject the good shepherd, but they just throw at him a, the, the price of a dead slave. That's his wages for all of his sacrificial work. In the middle here, the fourth point that we're going to see, the fourth, fourth saying, it emphasizes the offense that this is to God. In verse 13, it says, The Lord said to me, Throw it to the potter. That's the 30 pieces of silver. Throw it to the potter. That princely price that they set on me. That's God. Me is God here. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord for the potter. Most likely the potter is the Lord. We are the clay. He is the potter. He dwells in the house of the Lord. And the Lord is saying this, y'all. Zechariah, they treated you like a slave because they see me that way. All this is being rolled uphill, so to speak. The offense is not really to Zechariah and stop there. It goes all the way to God. It goes into the temple of God. The 30 pieces of silver are thrown into the temple. And this foreshadows Judas. The high priest would give Judas 30 pieces of silver. So here's your payment for, for betraying Jesus Christ, for bringing the Son of God into our grip so we can kill Him and crucify Him. And then Judas, eventually in the providence of God, feeling the pain of all that, would take the 30 pieces of silver and throw it into the temple. You understand now what, what, what God is doing in His providence. is Using the wickedness of Judah, 
He is de- and, and p- putting this together with Zechariah's prediction and prophecy, God is demonstrating to everybody who's reading the scripture and puts it all together, God's demonstrating how offended he was at Judas. And not just at Judas, but at the high priest, the temple rulers. That's how they view the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing more than a dead slave who even deserved to die. So the people are ungrateful. God is offended. Fifthly, the people will be divided. Look at verse 14. Then I cut into my other staff named bonds or unity, that I may break the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. This fits the fifth day of creation because in the fifth day God makes swarmers all around. He fills the, the earth up with, with birds and fish. In your fifth age of life or era of life, He fills you up with children. You've got a lot of swarming things around you. Here, God takes the people and decreates them in the sense that He divides them. He breaks that staff. So the, co- the covenant vertical is broken and the unity horizontal is broken. God's judgment is going to come upon them. Sixthly, He will not give them a righteous Adam or ruler, but He'll give them wicked rulers. Look at this in verse 15. The Lord said to me, Next, take for yourself the implements of a foolish shepherd. It could be a wicked shepherd. It's not that he's ignorant, but he's actually wicked. That's what foolishness means in the Bible. Verse 16, For indeed, I will raise up a shepherd in the land who will not care for those who are cut off, nor seek the young, nor heal those that are broken, nor feed those that stand still, but he will eat the flesh of the fat and tear their hooves in pieces. You could apply this to the high priest. The high priest during the times of the apostolic age. The high priest functioned just like in the days when they stoned Stephen, the high priest and all the rulers of the temple. They had false messiahs. They had false promises. And they thought that they were going to lead the people to revolt against Rome. And all it did was bring in the, the catastrophe. You can see how they raised, God raised up wicked rulers in the days of the apostles leading up to the downfall of Jerusalem. Lastly, in this passage of Scripture, the seventh part, we see that it's not a blessing, but a curse. It's not a good Sabbath, but a judgment. Verse 17 says this, Woe to the worthless shepherd who leaves the flock. A sword shall be against his arm and against his right eye. His arm shall completely wither and his right eye shall be totally blinded. Here's what's interesting. Even though God allows this worthless shepherd to come up and devour the people and and consume them, God also judges that worthless shepherd. God also condemns him, puts out his eye, destroys his arm. These are imageries of might and strength, blinds him and kills him. You have a picture of this in the past. In 2 Kings chapter 25, verse 7, the, very, the last king that ruled in the land of Judah was Zedekiah. And he was a wicked king. He enslaved the sheep, that is the people under him, and would not want to let them go. He functioned like a pharaoh. And whenever Nebuchadnezzar came in there and destroyed the city, they killed Zedekiah's children in front of him, and then they put out his eyes, and they brought him to Babylon. That's how God in his providence dealt with Zedekiah. 
Now, that's not just the Old Testament. This is where he gets to some application points now. That in the New Testament era, after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, in our time period of history, this is how God dealt with the city of Jerusalem in AD 70 and the years following that. This is how God remembered Babylon the Great and dealt with them in, their, in a very hard and a vindictive providence with his vengeance. So let me apply three uh, points of application to you today. As you can tell, this is a difficult chapter in the sense that it's, a, it's dark, it's judgmental, but it's also prophetic and explaining to you the time of Christ Jesus and what Christ went through. Here's an application to make from this when we put it all together. And that is this, the Lord Jesus Christ can be very painfully patient. What do I mean by that? Painfully patient. When you read and think about what the martyrs went through in the first century, the Lord Jesus Christ let it happen. God, Jesus Christ did not intervene and come to the rescue and stop Stephen from dying. Jesus Christ did not intervene and stop a multitude of Jewish Christians from being persecuted and killed by the evil high priest in the temple. He let it happen. He was very patient. He was painfully patient. Painfully patient because we often want justice right now. Sometimes God lets bad things happen and then He waits to vindicate it or correct it or pour His vengeance out later. This is a key theme in the book of Revelation that you can see, and also of Zechariah. Second application is this. The Lord Jesus Christ can be extremely brutal in His vengeance. Very brutal. This is, again, where you see that Jesus Christ remembered great Babylon to give her the cup of vengeance, to give her the cup of the wrath of God. It makes you realize that, yes, when you come to the Lord Jesus Christ and, and you repent of your sins, you acknowledge your sins, and you confess your sins, He completely removes all of that as far as the East is from the West, and you are forgiven, you are free. But people who are hardened in their sin, people who want to reject Christ Jesus, Jesus Christ in His wrath can be extremely brutal. And I don't simply mean an eternal hell. Yes, that's brutal. But you think about history. You think about civilizations that have risen, that have rejected God. Um, think about Germany. Martin Luther was a great reformer. And the Protestant Reformation started in Europe. All the, a lot of the great doctrines that we have here came uh, from Martin Luther, John Calvin, and all that. And you, then you think years, centuries after that, what do they do? They reject the Reformation and they ex exalt a false Messiah named Adolf Hitler. And thankfully, God in His hard providence raised up nations to go and assault them and completely destroy that evil regime. You can interpret history like this and see that God's hand of providence sometimes bringing in a severe brutality against evil, um, especially when they, when they deserve it. And God in His patience will allow people to go through difficult things, but He will vindicate His people in the end. Lastly, when you pull all this together, let me encourage you with this, that the Lord's patience and the Lord's vengeance motivates us to worship Him. 
It makes us realize that when we come to the Lord and worship on Sunday mornings, we're coming to a God who gives us strength during times of hardship, who gives us strength to endure whatever trials we come to. And we know that He sees everything. His eyes are on the faithful throughout the, all, all the earth. And He wants to encourage you to know that one day, if not in this life or the next life or in the resurrection of the dead, He will have His full vengeance on the wicked and on evil. And so you need to learn to take Sundays especially and just, just rest in the Lord. Just know that God's going to take care of that. As I prayed earlier, this world is morally upside down. This world morally hates God and is trying to turn it upside down. But we need to have times of rest where we come and say, Lord, you're going to take care of it. Lord, you're going to strengthen your people. Lord, it may not be in my generation, but it'll be some generation to come where you're going to raise up righteousness, where you're going to put down the wicked. And we pray, Lord, that you'll be merciful in our days. Lastly, you can think about this. When you put all these verses of the Bible together, Jesus is not really a, a bleeding heart. He's a brave heart. Whenever people assault his bride, whenever people uh, condemn the church and stand against the church, it really makes Jesus angry. And you don't want to do that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you will be with your people in a special way. Encourage us with your strong hand of providence. And we pray, Lord Jesus, that you will encourage us with the faithfulness of Stephen, Abraham, Noah, Enoch, and all the saints in the past. That you'll strengthen your people to, to worship you, to rest in you, and to know that this entire world is in the hands of your sovereignty. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.